Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, June 17th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me with his reporting and editorial analysis. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. A report in this week's Publishers Weekly made me momentarily nostalgic for the days of Book Expo, Andrew. The article suggests that the U.S. publishing trade show, long time gone, won't be back soon, and that really there isn't much appetite anywhere in the publishing community for the same kind of large-scale U.S.-based publishing conference that was Book Expo. Yeah, a really interesting article by my boss, Jim Milliot, about the future of, well, not Book Expo, because as you say, Book Expo is long gone. But what might come after Book Expo? If we'll ever see a trade show like Book Expo again. But I'll start by pointing out that this year's U.S. Book Show just finished. Another great event for Publishers Weekly. Virtual only, of course. And I'll take this opportunity to remind our listeners that they can still access the presentations online through the U.S. Book Show platform. Uh, and the Libraries are Essential program is also available on PW's YouTube channel. Uh, we've also announced dates for next year, so the U.S. Book Show will be back in 2023, May 23rd to the 25th, so you can mark your calendars. <laughs> but I think the question is, you know, what might the U.S. Book Show or really any future trade publishing industry event look like in the future? That's sort of the question of the article that, that Jim wrote. And the overwhelming response from the big houses was that they really have no desire to go back to a Javits-style uh, show with big booths and all the costs and time and resources that that entails. Now, there is some appetite for a show that is more consumer-focused. Then again, those shows are in many ways even more labor-intensive for publishers. Now, smaller publishers and indies, too, uh, authors as well, are more interested in returning to some kind of trade show. But I think you know, my boss, Jim Milley, the author, kind of summed up the gist of the article when he said to us in the office that big publishers and providers like Ingram, for example, don't want another book expo and smaller publishers can't afford it. Like that is a pretty good summation of, of where things stand. Now, I think the U.S. Book Show has been a pretty good stand in and has been pretty well supported. So we thank everyone for that. But what does the future of the publishing industry trade show look like? You know, we're, we at Publishers Weekly are listening and thinking on it very much. But I think it would be helpful if we had some basic buy-in that the greatest publishing nation in the world, the United States of America, would have some kind of trade show on its soil. We covered those events over the years, of course, Andrew. And for the last decade, I certainly felt, I think you might have too, the enthusiasm for the show, Book Expo, draining away. And then, of course, COVID-19 hit. Yeah, no question about it. Book Expo had significant challenges. And to be clear, some of those challenges were, you know, sort of self-inflicted because, well, let me say this, Book Expo had really, really smart people running their show. Uh, they did some great programming. They came up with great ideas for a number of years. But those really smart people running the show had to report up to a very, very profit-driven corporate parent. And so there really wasn't much of a chance to try new things and give new things time to work and catch on and to listen and reflect and you know take things in a different direction. So the last couple of years of Book Expo especially were really, you know, sort of head snapping, right? You three days, two days, half days on the show floor, book con, you know, no book con. You know, what the industry really needed in my estimation, in the midst of some pretty historic trends, consolidation and Amazon and, of course, digital, I think the industry really needed a sort of right-size book expo. And, you know, a company like Read Exhibitions that own Book Expo, well, they're not about shrinking stuff. <laughs> they're all about making stuff bigger. So that just wasn't going to work. 
And of course, then COVID-19 hit, as you said, and, and read exhibitions pretty quickly pulled the plug, even though I will point out that Book Expo pulled off what I thought was a really solid sort of last minute virtual event in 2020. Uh, Matt Wazowski ran the show then. I thought the presentations were excellent, and I really thought that they were going to sort of fill the gap from the time that we closed down to the time we were going to get back together in person. But I think the quick hook by read exhibition sort of underscores the fact that the company really had has no patience for money-losing events. And look, for the publishing industry, too, I also get it. It's tough. We can't even figure out at this point whether we should be getting people back to the office or not. The pandemic is still very much a thing. So the idea of starting to think about forcing everyone to go back into a conference center like the Javits or something, it seems like a non-starter at this point. But two things I'd also point out. One is that I think the major players are making a bit of a mistake here. You know, I think the players at the top of the publishing industry chain have gotten so big uh, and are getting bigger that they feel like, you know, they don't need this anymore, right? They don't need this annual event or the community behind them. But I think, you know, my experience doing this all over the world is that these trade shows really do serve a purpose. They bring people together and they highlight the work of an industry, not just for customers, but for government officials, et cetera. So, you know, for a week a year, the publishing industry through Book Expo got some headlines and people got to come to New York and have some meetings and see people face to face. And I think that those things at some point post-pandemic are going to start mattering again. I think the community matters. I think especially the community matters when you're facing challenges like, say, the freedom to publish and book banning, things that are going on right now. So, look, my feeling on this is that, you know, maybe they feel like they don't need it now, but the big publishers especially, maybe there will come a day, though. I do believe that there may well come a day where the big players will look around and see that they need the community and they need the support of the community. And they'll wish, hmm, if only we'd supported our trade show. But at that point, I worry it's going to be too late to sort of revive it. And the other thing, too, I'd bring up is that publishers are sort of suggesting that the ALA annual conference, the American Library Association conference, which happens in June, might do the trick. You know, you can break out authors there. They have a big stage. Uh, they have a lot of people. They, you can do your meetings there and do your business there. But that's fraught, too, because, you know, the ALA as an association is also evolving and facing some questions about the future of its show. And, you know, also, you know, the Publishers Trade Association has been out there sort of going after libraries a little bit. So I think suggesting that the library community's trade show is going to be enough to support the publishing industry. Well, it's true that librarians love authors and publishers and books and books are very much the star of ALA. But I think that feels like a bit of a stretch to me. A federal judge in Maryland issued her final order this week in the Association of American Publishers lawsuit to block the Maryland Library ebook law. Yeah, so the legal battle in Maryland is officially over. Federal Judge Deborah Boardman issued a declaratory judgment that was basically agreed to by the parties, uh, and that order declared the Maryland Library ebook law to be preempted by the Federal Copyright Act, unconstitutional and unenforceable. Uh, the court, however, denied the AAP's bid for a permanent injunction. But honestly, it doesn't really matter because the declaratory judgment really gets the job done here. Uh, Maryland, which had not invoked the law, is now basically precluded from doing so in the future. But look, I have to tell you from a personal perspective and based on what I'm hearing and you know, not speaking for my employer here, I feel like this whole affair has not really been handled very well. And by that, I mean, you know, the library ebook market and the way the tension in the library ebook market. For one, you know, the publishers throughout all of this have really not responded directly to the issue at hand, which is an issue that we've been discussing for well over a decade, and that is fair and equitable access to ebooks and libraries. Instead, they've sort of let the AAP speak for them uh, and the lawyers speak for them. And I think the AAP has offered up some, you know, 
questionable public statements that have not necessarily reflected well from a PR perspective, shall we say, on publishers. You know, the biggest thing being that the library ebook market is working fine uh, and that the librarians involved are some in some kind of alliance with big tech to undermine copyright, which, you know, librarians say, and I've been hearing them say this for a while, and as someone who has covered this story from the very beginning, is really kind of a mischaracterization. So now that this is all over, I think it's important to note that all libraries have ever asked for is access to digital content on print equivalent prices or as close to that as they can get. Uh, but because ebooks are licensed, they have absolutely no leverage to negotiate that with publishers. Now, if they were private market actors, they could just walk away, right? That would be their negotiation position. Your price is too high. See ya. I'm leaving the table. But they can't because they're public, mission-driven institutions. So they can't just walk away. Uh, their communities want this and need this. They need these resources and the library needs these resources to do their work. And therein lies the rub. Therein lies the issue at the heart of this, right? Publishers can charge whatever they want and know they will still make the sale because libraries can't just get up and walk away without abandoning their mission, which none of them want to do. And that's one of the things that libraries really hope this law in Maryland would provide, which is a sliver of motivation for price negotiation. Look, libraries are not asking for more for less, as was suggested during this lawsuit. They're not seeking anything for free. They're fine with ebooks that expire after 25 lens, for example. They're fine with other restrictions as well. All libraries have ever sought to address in the ebook market is, as I said, equitable access to digital content, a market that more resembles like what they used to do in print. Now, did they rush through and write a law and enact a law that ran afoul of copyright? Apparently so. Yes, the court in Maryland found that they did. And that's important, too. And I think that should be understood as well. But I think the proper response from the publishers community here, rather than to celebrate their win, is to say, look, this is unfortunate. You know, we had to sue because this law impacts copyright and we had to defend that part of copyright. I think people would have understand that. And then you say, well, we value libraries and we want to work with libraries to resolve your issues. And then you meet with librarians to resolve your issues. Now, the AAP can't do that. That has to be done by the publishers. The AAP does not negotiate prices or get involved with licenses. So it has to happen from the publisher level. And that, I believe, is the play that really needs to happen. But instead, what we have here is the AAP is suggesting that librarians were somehow trying to undermine copyright. But this was never meant to be an assault on copyright. And I do think now that this is over that we understand this. Because, look, librarians are great supporters of copyright. You know, libraries exist because of copyright. Every time a reader checks out a book a library has purchased or gets on a holds list, that is, that is a librarian inculcating us with the values of respecting an author's work and of valuing that copyright. So it really has bothered librarians. And I, my email inbox is full of this, that over the course of this lawsuit, the AAP has sort of asserted that librarians in Maryland was seeking to enact some sort of shadow copyright system. I mean, you can look at the legislative record here. You know, Maryland only sought to ensure that readers who depend upon public libraries were not unfairly discriminated against. And the state believed it was regulating contracts because ebooks are licensed. At the same time, it's worth pointing out to you that it's the publishers who are actually walking away from copyright in the digital realm in favor of these contracts that, you know, sort of conveniently write out the parts of copyright that libraries depend on. So to sum it up, here's how I look at this conflict. Libraries here are only asking for digital books to be provided on terms that more closely resemble the way they have bought print and operated under copyright law for decades. That's all they've ever asked for in this. They're not seeking to undermine copyright. They're seeking to preserve it and take it forward in the digital realm. 
And a lot of publishers, we should know, offer just that. And in fact, one of the major publishers, HarperCollins, basically offers that. But the AAP's response in the lawsuit has basically been that Congress, since 1975, has thought that it's best for publishers to have the right to deny libraries access to digital books for any reason at all, or to charge libraries whatever they want, and that the contracts are almost completely outside the reach of state regulation. All of this is to say that, you know, the AAP is is touting its victory here, and they did win this case. It's a very narrow copyright lawsuit, but it's pretty narrow. It is, right? The final order applies only in the state of Maryland, and librarians are just gearing up for the next thing. I have to tell you, I've been speaking to librarians. Something else is coming, right? Rhode Island might actually pass its library ebook law this month, which means we could have this whole fight over again in a different courtroom in a different state. So I really feel like nothing has been solved here, that nothing has been won. And I maintain my position that I've had throughout this, that the only way that this gets properly resolved in a way that benefits anyone is for publishers and libraries to settle this in the boardroom and not the courtroom. Now, to be clear, to the extent that the AAP's lawsuit did create some clarity around the scope of copyright law and federal preemption, that's useful. Absolutely. But to pretend that this was really about copyright or that there was an attack on copyright by librarians, that's deeply unfortunate. And you know, one final note here before we close the book on this case, it also appears that the AAP is seeking to have Maryland taxpayers cover the AAP's costs and attorney fees. And you can imagine how that is going over with lawmakers and Marylanders who you know, saw this law pass unanimously in part because they believed publishers were taking advantage of taxpayers. Now, whether they were or not, you know, opinions can differ. And maybe this is a warning shot to other states by the AAP, sort of like, you know, don't try this in your state or else you'll be paying for our lawyers too. But look, it's a bad look. It just is, right? Penguin Random House is getting ready to argue in a DC court, you know, right over the border from Maryland, that it should be allowed to acquire Simon & Schuster and become a multi-billion dollar mega publisher. It could afford to pay its lawyers, especially when the decision it just won in Maryland is going to enable them to charge whatever they want for eBooks. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program today. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, with their indifferent, detached expressions, the 10,000 members of the Bored Apes Yacht Club look, well, bored. But there is great excitement in the billion-dollar market for these digital images, which were launched in April 2020 and count singers Justin Bieber and Madonna among their many celebrity owners. When actor Seth Green paid $200,000 to purchase Bored Ape NFT number 8398, a.k.a. Fred Simeon, the deal included licensing rights, and Green created a television show to feature Fred. Then, just weeks ago, Fred went missing. Paul Sweeting, editor of RightsTech.com and co-chair of the RightsTech Summit, sorts out the strange, twisted tale of a bored ape, touching on copyright law, cryptocurrency, and blockchain code. A smart contract is is simply a bit of self-executing code. It's not the equivalent of a contract of sale that, uh, or a, a license contract that is written down by lawyers and, and signed by both parties and notarized. Cryptocurrency, cryptic copyright, coming on the next CCC podcast. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC. 